Hey everyone, before we begin this week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast, I have a favor to ask. Please rate, review, and subscribe the Berman Hour podcast wherever you're listening. It does not matter what platform, it does matter that you do this, it helps us out tremendously. So go ahead and hit that pause button, and then hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to the Berman Hour podcast. Give us a five-star rating, and write us a nice review. Every little bit helps. Very much appreciated. All right, enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. It is the 18th. It's Monday. This will be out tomorrow, the 19th. And then on Wednesday, the 20th, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Albeit momentarily, but at least this version, this one version of the nightmare will have concluded. (sighs) You know, we got a lot of work to do. Collectively, individually, we need to hold Ms. Harris and Mr. Biden accountable, and we will. But I feel like at least now we have a fighting chance to actually get the work done. I don't know about you, but there have been so many times over the past four years where it just felt so stifling to even begin a lot of the work. And despite the fact that Trump has been defeated, we now know that we need to work hard to defeat Trumpism. And we need to work harder to defeat this neo-American fascism. Switching gears, figuratively and literally, something fun that I wanted to share that happened to me today was that my car, my black Toyota 2008 Prius, hit 200,000 miles. It was awesome. I was with my wife and uh, the bean that she has in her belly and our dog, Ms. Magpie, And we hit 200K while we were driving today. Here's what I think is fucking crazy. When my car hit 100,000 miles, it happened in Santa Barbara, California, on Pacific Avenue, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Today, my car hit 200,000 miles in Wildwood Crest, New Jersey, on Atlantic Avenue, Overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, come on. Come on. You can't write that shit. How does that even happen? You fucking kidding me? That's crazy. That's crazy, right? That's fucking crazy. I'm still fucking flabbergasted. This week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast is once again brought to you by our great sponsors at New Wave, who are bringing us the newest and best damn coffee on the marketplace. They call it Flow State Coffee because when you drink this, it sets your mind into what they call a flow state where you are fully concentrated and your brain is operating in an optimum performance mode, which is essential for you to get done the shit that you need to get done. I know what you're thinking, Jeff. It sounds like minutia. It sounds like BS. No, it's not. I can assure you, it's great for creative types. It's great for people who are easily distracted because when you drink this coffee, 
The caffeine and the L-theanine work together to keep you focused on the task at hand. I like it because I can have a cup, maybe two cups, and then I'm done. I don't need any more. I don't need to be sipping on coffee throughout the day because I don't have that dreaded caffeine crash. Everything about this coffee is balanced and great, in addition to the fact that it tastes great. So let me help you get 10% off your first order because I guarantee it will not be your last order. Go to newwave.co slash Berman, N-O-O-W-A-V-E dot C-O slash B-E-R-M-A-N. That gets you 10% off your first order. Try it for yourself. Get it as a gift for the coffee lover in your life. Get it as a gift for that person that's impossible to get gifts for. If you're really that unsure about it, get it for somebody that you don't like and just imagine that they're your personal jester and they're trying it for you and if they try it and they get sick and die, then at least it's them and not you. I guarantee you that's not going to happen. This stuff's good. It's going to help you and I I really can't recommend it enough. Go to newwave.co slash Berman. Get 10% off your first order and enjoy. And enjoy my conversation right now with Mr. Jeff Rowe. Where are you from? I am from Gloucester, Massachusetts. I knew it was a town on the North Shore that I couldn't pronounce properly. Gloucester. Yeah, well, Gloucester has the the uh, the same thing that Worcester has, which is like people would want to kind of throw in the ch. So Gloucester, Worcester, but also Massachusetts is full of like you know the accent here is weird. So like we you know I mean I don't I didn't get the accent, which is also weird. But uh, you, you know you don't you don't speak like you're from Boston. But I every was, time I I'm was, around you, I'm compelled to speak as if I'm in Boston. <laughs> yeah. You want to put on like some Ben Affleck type shit where it's like from oh my the town. God. <laughs> I get that. I mean, I, I I think I'd like I like to think that like uh, you know, like the North like the Massachusetts and the, the Northeast is like in me in general, but I definitely grew up getting made fun of for speaking funny because I didn't have an accent, which was ironic. Yeah, what's Gloucester? Oh, fuck it, Gloucester. You got it, Gloucester. What is Gloucester like? Yeah. Uh, when I was gr- well, it's different now. When I was growing up, it was like uh, uber working class. Uh, most people worked uh, on you know in like the fishing industry. Um, when you were a kid growing up, you had a. There wasn't a lot going on there, so it was more like uh, I think my experience was more like uh, we would like um, I played baseball love the sport, uh, love playing baseball. And, uh, then I was, you know, drinking in the woods. Uh, you know, there was like nothing you can, there was not much going on. Well, how so, far was it from Boston? It's like 45 minutes. It's, it, but it's almost the end of the line. There's Gloucester, there's Rockport, there's the ocean. Yeah. I mean, was it the kind of thing like growing up, were you able to get on the train and get to a Newberry comics and kind of immerse totally. yourself in some sort of subculture? So you weren't yep. totally removed. Okay. Yeah. No, I wasn't. But the the cool part about being there was it was like a you know the lack of options that you had kind of made you like create like I don't know like I I, I found I found music like I, all that stuff was like I don't know if I would have uh, I don't know if I would have fallen into things like punk if I hadn't like been there because like yeah. it, it, I felt like there was just a sincere lack of options and 
And uh, so when I found out there was like a venue in town or whatever, it was, or it wasn't even really a venue, it was just a place. I was like enamored. So that got me into that stuff. But Did your discovery of music and underground music, was it tethered to a desire to play music as well? Or was it separate for you? Well, for me, playing music was, was the same thing that we would like, if you like pick up a book and you're not an author and you're like, how the hell? did somebody accomplish something like th- Like this is like some huge mountain to climb. Right. So to yeah. me, that was what music always was. I was lucky in the sense that my brother, um, I have, uh, I'm one of five. My brother listened to like uh, Slayer and like early Metallica. And my, one of my sisters listened to like dead Kennedys and the violent Femmes and uh, early smashing pumpkins. So I got like all this, like weird, all this music was coming from different rooms in my house. And I was like, just like somewhere in between, uh, I kind of fell into like in, in love with that, the, That's cool. like music in general. Where are so. you in the five? What number are you? I'm the baby. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> Nice for sure. I think for my 14th birthday, my, uh, my father bought me a like really cheap guitar. I didn't know what, what to do with the damn thing. I know that. <laughs> did you do lessons or did you just figure it out by ear? I had an uncle uh, who was like very uh, in my family that everyone says that we're pretty much the same person. Uh, he's not around anymore, but he, uh, he learned how to play guitar on his own. So he taught me how to play guitar a little bit. And, but it turns out that he didn't know how to play. He, he didn't, he never got lessons. So he, all of his chords were like really weird. So I didn't like some of the chords I still play to this day are chords he taught me. And they're just like, the, the fingering is like ridiculous. <laughs> Do you know what they're variations of? No, the not at all. Chords? You know? Oh my goodness. Uh, no, not at all. And I'm also like not someone that's, I've never been able to read music or anything like that. So, well, I mean, do you know what like a D chord is? Yes. Okay. I do. Yeah. I, I think all of them were like striving to be chords like that were like the common chords, but they all have like an extra like, like the pinky goes somewhere weird and like that's just how he taught me and i'm like oh that's cool it's almost like you're playing a harm like a harmonic to it like where you're like oh that's weird yeah oh i would love to sit down with you at some point and see that because i'm always i i didn't have a mentor in that capacity but i always went with whatever sounded good and was kind of comfortable on the hand as well Mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways that makes my understanding of the root chord incorrect. So, for example, right. the way that I grew up playing a C chord is not your standard C chord at all. It's a variation of it. I think it's an augmented because I add a yep. thing to it. So your chords would be augmented versions of whatever. But to like to, to you, it's natural. So to play it, it regular probably feels somewhat naked. And I just find that so fucking fascinating. Yeah, like playing a G chord with the pinky on the uh, actual like um, the, the the high E is weird because I was taught to never play that. <laughs> oh, really? So yeah, so it's like the 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 G chord is like three fingers for me. Uh, stuff, but like just random stuff. But like, and also like the way he would play because uh, he was like a bar rock musician. Like he played in like local pubs and uh, whatnot, and he played uh, rock and roll and blues, but. Uh, he was just like a real, uh, he was a talented dude that like, he clearly, uh, didn't necessarily need to learn from anybody, but he was like, and I think what he did for me was more just like, 
uh, I guess my, uh, I guess my nephew has a guitar. So I guess I'm the only one in the family that knows how to play the guitar. So I'll swing by some afternoon. <laughs> you know, it was more of like a, it might've been more out of pity than anything yeah. else. Yeah. Did you start off playing solo or did you jump into the band world? I jumped right into the band world. I was a drummer first, but I jumped into the band world. Oh, really? Yeah. How far did you get into your drummer dumb? I had this like five piece Tama. Is it Tama or, or Tama? I got no fucking clue. All right. Uh, <laughs> never knew. <laughs> well, whatever. It was a black. It's badass. That's all I know. Yeah. Tama, Tama. I don't Tama. know. But uh, yeah, uh, I learned how to play pretty, pretty, pretty well. I was much better at drums than I was at guitar. I could tell you that oh, for sure. I played in like a jazz ensemble and uh, uh, wound up playing in like before you could call it maybe like grindcore uh, before I would before I knew what grindcore was. I played in a band that essentially wound up being blast beats and grindcore. Yeah, isn't yeah. it kind of remarkable how on like the the greater Venn diagram of music how jazz and like blast beats are remarkably close to one another. Yeah. They both walk that line of being like, uh, I mean, what's that? Uh, they're like, it's like the forbidden beats, you know, it's like, they're not meant for, they're not meant for everybody. Uh, and like, they're not designed to be like a, a pop song. They're designed to like fall, like, uh, deftly in the hands of people that care about it. And that's like, that works for some people. You still for some like people, jazz? you still like jazz. <clears throat> I never really liked jazz at all, <laughs> but I did want to learn. Like I wanted to learn the fundamentals. Uh, so I mean, I'd be a total poser if I told you I like jazz because yeah. it was like, I mean, I liked learning uh, odd time signatures and stuff like that, and I think that, that definitely played a role in uh, writing songs later on, uh, as far as like how you'd approach them. But like. Yeah, for the most part, I was just in it for like the skills. I wasn't. I didn't have much. I don't know how much heart I had behind the kit. Yeah, and then, but as a guitar player, and eventually as a singer, at what point did you begin writing your own music? Most. I mean, I, I always wrote uh, music, but I didn't. I never wrote lyrics, or like I didn't have like. Uh, I mean, I that. Well, I I say that, but the first band I was in, I sang in, but uh, I immediately realized I hated singing. Uh, did not want any part of it. My goal was always to be like the absolute best rhythm guitar player ever. I didn't want to be a lead guitar player. <laughs> I didn't want to, I definitely didn't want to sing. I know that. Cause like the idea of having uh, silence between uh, music and the crowd and then filling that in with whatever uh, bullshit you come up with. That's like, you know, mundane and or uh, none of that works for me. I, I, I hate it. <laughs> So, uh, it kind of was like out of like, uh, maybe like a skewed sense of attrition to like wind up being a singer. Cause like I was in a band for many years called boxing water and we were all buds wound up moving down to Virginia that I wound up moving home. I was with my friend Bert and we, I, nobody else was going to be able to sing. So I sang out of like, you know, I'll sing as a placeholder at first. It was like, I'll write these lyrics and sing, and then we'll give them to someone. Yeah. Uh, and that'll be cool when I'm a singer. And then I started liking it after a while, which was like that. The singing part definitely doesn't come natural to me whatsoever. Interesting. So boxing water goes to Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you went with Jericho, correct? I originally moved down there with, with Jericho and, and yeah. a, a couple other buds. Yeah. Which is who would become uh smoke or fire later. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, every time that I've toured with Joe, like he tells stories about you in Virginia, <laughs> like all, all of you guys in Virginia mm-hmm. and kind of the, um, the tenacity and, and the bravery that it took to leave your hometowns and go somewhere different and try something different. You know, how, how do you look back at those days now? You know, you're 20 years maybe removed from it almost. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do you look back on it at this point? I guess like my personal experience in that is a little different than theirs because I was living with them. I was sleeping on a floor in uh, a hallway in their apartment. And uh, I also shared the bed that I had with my buddy, John boy. So uh, it was like, <laughs> you know, it was like, I was like completely content. Like the, the walls were broken. The place was like, just like, this was a hell hole of an apartment with a lot of good memories that wound up, uh, we wound up, uh, extracting from that, uh, devastated place. But, uh, for them, I think it was an opportunity. Like they, they, they were like, it was functional. They were like, we're going to go down to Virginia because the rent's cheaper. We could tour all the time. We'll get records made and we won't have to work as much, which all made sense to me. Uh, but I also was living on that, like, mattress in the hallway and when they said they were leaving <clears throat> i was kind of like i guess i'll go too so uh, for me i felt like i was much more like a barnacle on a boat uh, okay. and they were definitely they were definitely the boat uh i was like i was just trying to like i was looking for something different my, my band had been had done okay and we were like but we we're stagnant and i was always like you know it, that band was like a part of my life for like so long that another change would have been great their experience which they did very well was to get down there and get to work on music i went down there and i was the only idiot that got like a serious job so i'm living in this house that parties like 24 7 and uh you know i'm like the produce manager at some organic food place. Like it's <laughs> not, it was, I mean, I still, it, it was great, but it was like, it definitely a different experience. Cause I had stopped. I pretty much stopped playing music when we moved down there. Yeah. And yeah. did you start doing solo stuff once you returned to Massachusetts? Just beforehand, uh, okay. I'd started writing and then, yeah, basically. So I was only down in Virginia for two years. Okay. They wound up being like very like formative years because like I, I guess I was like twenty two to twenty four yeah something around that they were important because like I was I'd never been alone I never lived somewhere where any anywhere outside of Massachusetts one but I also like you know hadn't lived anywhere where I couldn't like you know reach out to people and uh, I guess I had my friends there either way but it was like beginning again it was cool I liked yeah. it and Virginia was cool and that time in Richmond uh, for music was really cool. Cause like we stumbled into a ridiculous time period where like, you know, bands like strike anywhere. were just starting and avail was still uh, an active thing. You go to an avail show that was like in, in Richmond is at that time was just fucking batshit. Like, yeah, I imagine you know, that was special. Oh. The last, the last time you and I saw each other, we had this conversation about Avail, mm. and I told you, I was like, I can't go to any of the reunion shows, and you were like, Why not? Like, you have the tattoo, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. I, I will die. Like, I will hurt myself. Yeah. <laughs> the last time I saw him, it was just a regular show at the Auto Bar, and like, I'm not like a big mosh guy. I've never been some dude that's like walking on heads or anything like that, but for whatever reason, like. Ever since I was a little kid, 
because Avail was one of the first bands that I saw, and I credit them for being the first band that I saw that really uh, affected me. It had such a profound influence on me mm-hmm. in the manner in which how they carried themselves and how they performed and the beauty of their songs and the intensity of their performance. I mean, the last time I saw them, little timid me, I like I jumped off the balcony. Like that's not normal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they had a. I don't well, know what some... compelled me to. I don't know what was in their music that compelled me to do a flip off the balcony at the auto bar. But uh, there's something visceral about that band that uh, they they're able to on the nightly and getting the tour with them uh, as a roadie for uh, Smoke or Jericho at the time. Uh, there's something about that band where they capture something uh, that's like visceral and most bands do their, their very best to capture that, like this like thing that they can give to other people, you know, and they don't, it's not there, but Avail has it. And it's, it's something that like I would stumble over myself to articulate like what it really is, but uh, it's there and it's there every night. And even if they don't have a good night for themselves, that whatever they have is still there for the crowd. And that's, um, it's, it's an intangible, not something you find. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's an it factor there, but it's not in a manner of commercial success or generating any revenue for them. I, I mean, I don't think I ever expected them to be bigger than they ever were. Although there was a time in the nineties where they were untouchable and, and probably courted by, by bigger you know, bigger guns in the industry. But yeah, yeah, there was something about that band that was truly special and, and trying to describe that to people. I, I noticed a lot when I had, after living in California for 12 years, that people out there don't have the same reverence for a veil as people on the East coast do. And that makes sense. You know, trying to explain that to them, I felt like I was, you know, to me, I just sounded like I was trying to sell them down the river on a bunch of great records. But it was that intangible quality that was so hard to uh, articulate and so hard to, to capture in a manner which people would understand. Because you saw the reunion show, right? What was it like for you? Yeah, my well, one of the best moments of my musical, it's definitely not a career, but in the time that I played music, was opening for Avail uh, with my band Tied to a Bear. And that was... Uh, oh, that's that, right. Yeah. That, like, that was, uh, like, coming full circle for me. I don't know. Like, again, like, <clears throat> I mean, the, the dudes in that band would probably just be cringing when, when they hear stuff like stuff like this. But, like, for me, that was, like, I was literally opening for the band that gave all the fuel that I would ever need to do something, like, sincere and meaningful. Yeah that is a wild thing. Like I've, I've never experienced it uh, before. I mean, I doubt I'll experience it again. <laughs> I mean, it was awesome, but also seeing them, you, I realized then that like they were the, uh, they were the same exact band that they were when I was 22 and I was touring like as a roadie, like that same energy was there. They just have it. It's a, you can do your, your level best to try to recreate stuff like that. But the sincerity and, uh, the delivery above all is uh, unbelievable. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, it's something to watch and it's something to listen to and they got it. And and I understand the West coast, not necessarily being so into avail per se. Cause I feel like, I feel like avail is pulling from a different spring uh, than maybe exists out in the West coast. And I think the same would apply 
to some West Coast bands that are pretty fucking remarkable. You yeah, know, that sure. that don't that don't that don't land on the East Coast per se. They're just they're they're getting a lot of stuff. They're getting their um they're getting their uh, impulse to create from a, just a, a different spring. You know? Yeah, I'm trying to follow up what you're saying with something worthwhile and articulate about that band, but it's just. I, I can't put my finger on it. I don't think I ever could. And I think that's what kept me coming back to him. Even to this day, like I, when I listen to those records, I'm just, I'm ready to fucking stage dive off my God. Oh yeah. Degree, you know? I mean, they're, they're up there with like, I mean, so you, you, Avail has this visceral heart thing that, that like, you know, it's like, you know, you can't, you can't look away from like, then there's bands like, you know, like the, like the Dillinger four, like Dillinger four, like um, they're a sneaky band. Cause they're probably the smartest band lyrically that punk has to offer. Um, and they're incredible with transitions, like to the point where it's like, it's almost like they're like kind of like flabbing it, you know, where you're, they're just like, we are a ridiculous band. <clears throat> and then you see them live and they're hammered and you're like, oh, <laughs> either way. Uh, and like, you know, Crimp Shrine, that old band, uh, you know. Do a lot of that, do a lot of those old records stand up for you? Uh, a lot of them do but not all of them i will say that i can't think of one that doesn't off the top of my head but i put on duct tape soup (laughs) recently and i was just like i i can't do this i i I don't know how i ever did this and i hate feeling like that but i don't know i guess that's part of getting older it's not like i'm growing out of the person that i was that when i discovered it I, i think some of it is just recording quality and aesthetic and time right. and place and, and stuff like that. But I, I, don't I think know. mostly, I think mostly those old, those are record, those old records like hold a, a time and place for me where it's like, I think if I heard like duct tape soup today from a band, like if someone was like, you should really listen to this band, I'd be like, they, they have a lot of heart. That's awesome. But like, it's not for me. Yeah. All right. So at what point did you really dive in fully into being a dreaded, you know, singer songwriter, because it obviously was not your intuition to be a singer. It wasn't your intuition to necessarily be a solo artist, but you're back in Massachusetts. And yeah. is it at that point you, that you have a renewed focus to do it? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I realized that I could sing now. I mean, at that point I was like, still not able to sing very well, but I was like, this works. Uh, the first version of the band that i was in tomorrow the gallows was was an electric version of our band and then the drummer uh quit and then it was just bert and myself and then we started singing songs and then before i knew it bert was gone and then uh, so i was like like i said it was really more just like uh so i i guess i'll just do this and uh, i started playing shows uh ryan the terrible um from here obviously uh who is like one of my best friends in the world. He was very kind about putting me on shows. The reaction was like good, but also like it felt good. Um, and then was I, it I under kind of kept your going. name? Was it initially? Yeah, it was. And that was that I, I, I still feel like that was a mistake. How so? <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of like, I don't know. Have you ever had like those, like when you see your name on like a shirt or a record to me, I have a, kind of a guttural i just don't like seeing it and i don't know what that is about i don't know what that says about me or whatever but like 
I was like, I wish I just would have called it something else. Like the way that like someone, you know, fucking bright eyes or, you know, whatever. I wish I would have just called it something else. Cause something about my name being wrapped up in that is something I've, I, I wound up uh, not enjoying. That's really interesting. I was just yeah. talking with someone earlier today about that, where I didn't so much think of it in terms of merchandise, although I can see where you're coming from. I think mm-hmm. selling merchandise that says Jeff Berman would be more difficult than merchandise that says divided heaven or at times when I've just kept it kind of uh, elusive and just had a DH or, or just did right. different with the art. But I, my uncle is a jazz musician and for Christmas one year gave me a CD by a jazz musician named Jeff Berman. And that was probably in the early nineties. And then by the time I came around to being a solo artist, it was right when Discogs and what was that uh, the band to band site and everything was kind of being cataloged online, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, I'm probably going to get confused and lumped in with this other jazz musician, Jeff Berman, who was great, but it was clearly not me. And I just right, right. I, so I wanted to name it something. Having a name that everybody thinks is religious was certainly not my intention, and definitely a shortcoming. you know, looking back all these years later, but I'm glad that it has at least a little bit of ambiguity and detachment from who I am as, as the songwriter, because I guess it's a level of comfort that maybe I take for granted that now, as I talk to you, who's been playing under the moniker of your own name for so long, there's that discomfort there from time to time. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I mean, I think there's a, you know, it's hard to say this without like sounding like you're like propping yourself up in some way, but like um, my ego doesn't support uh, using my name for that stuff. And I didn't realize that right away. <laughs> uh, and I, I, in my uh, infinite wisdom have realized that uh, the reasons why it doesn't support that uh, and the reasons why it's like a little bit off putting to me, but at the same time, I don't know. I mean, it's, I made some records under my name and they helped some folks and, uh, and some people still spin them. And that is like, I mean, it's hard to find a negative in there. If my, if my negative is I shouldn't have used my name, I think I'm doing all right. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're being a little too hard on yourself. I think you're being a little too hard on yourself. When we met, it was, Mm -hmm. I believe it was the first or second year that I played fest. I still have the picture of us. Uh, yeah, I saw that recently too. I think it's me and you and Neil from Anchorless Records, mm-hmm. and it's at the Paper and Plastic Warehouse. It is the party. Mm-hmm. I was really uh, looking forward to meeting you before I met you because I liked your music, but I was also rather enamored with just how much you toured, and mm. you were kind of setting a, a pace that no one was really matching. And you were doing it at a time before the social media platforms existed as we know them now. Mm-hmm. Not to say that necessarily Instagram will help you get to Ukraine or Russia, but like you got there before all that shit. So that's pretty remarkable. I'm curious, like, where did that bug come from? Like, did you tour, always tour a lot with your bands and then this was just an extension once you were solo? Or was this kind of a fresh start? and you were ready to fucking go. I think like coming from the town uh, that I grew up in, Gloucester, 
it was remote enough and ignorant enough that you, like the goal was always to get away from it. And to me, like learning a skill, like playing guitar or writing songs was always a vessel to like get out. Um, and I, I was always the one in the band. If you were ever in a band with me, you would probably roll your eyes when I would constantly talk about how we need to leave town or how we need to go on tour. Like touring was always a thing that I wanted to do no matter what. I realized the benefits of touring uh, more so when I was solo because the overhead was so low right. in the sense that like, you know, and my partner, Alyssa would uh, came with me for like almost every tour, if not every tour. Um, and so we would like, you know, kind of traverse the, the country. And when the country was done, it was Europe. And then, then we realized that like, maybe we can go to Russia. And I still think, I still think we did the longest Russian tour of any American musician ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You told me that at one point. How many shows yeah. did you do on that tour? On oh, my God. Tour? Uh, we went all the way to, like, uh, the deep uh, Siberia, which was uh, the, the, the Asian part of um, Russia, above, like, Kazakhstan. And um, shit, I don't know. I'd have to look at, like, a, a laminate I probably saved in a box. Yeah. <laughs> like, 30-some-odd shows or something oh like that. Gosh, and what got you there? There was a kid named Dima uh, who reached out randomly. I think he'd heard that record Barstool Conversations that I put out. That was your first and, record, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. And then he was like, uh, would you ever come to Russia? And I was like, uh, yeah, of course I would come. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and then he was like, okay, maybe maybe you come to Russia, you do uh, Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg. And that sounded cool. So this is like months and months away. And we, we'd already booked, uh, we have a tour in Europe. So we're going to like segue, like go from Europe to Russia. And then he keeps on firing back emails where he's like, it turns out there are a lot of people that are interested in having you if you would go deeper into Russia. And he's like, I know that that's scary for Americans. And I was like, uh, yeah, that sounds uh, e like in equal measure uh, scary and let's do it. <laughs> like fun. So <clears throat> by the time he had booked the first tour there, uh, we had like, I think like 15 or some odd dates. I could be wrong, but there was something. And then we saw Russia. It was cool uh, and scary and, and all the things that get wrapped up in a place like uh, Russia, which is... How was it scary? You know, you just don't know the language. Uh, and that's not <clears throat> necessarily a bad thing, but uh, there are moments because, like, they have, um, you know, they're, they have armed military around and uh, you're, at, you're reaching, like, checkpoints and um, yeah, even at train stations. So, like, if you're... Um, like our tour manager Dima, if he wasn't like right next to us, like you could feel the tension. And then you know, all, and also people were at, at a certain point were like had never seen an American before, so they were like, you know, what are you doing here? Do they have us as the boogeyman in the same way that we have them as a boogeyman for all these generations? No, that's like that weird American exceptionalism. Uh, it, like, it's like, uh, we think we're, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're not necessarily on their minds so much as much as like, they're just like, they think we're rich. <laughs> like if you yeah. like, what, I remember specifically having a conversation with someone who in, in, like in Siberia, uh, this was the second tour we did there. And they were like, 
and how is America? You know, they were like, you know, troubleshooting English. And I'm like, you know, I, I've learned a couple words in Russian. And uh, they were more just like, wait, you're like me? They, they, Not they were rich. surprised to hear you were just a working class musician. Yes. Yes. Like that, like they thought that like, you know, I was like, because I was there and because I was playing music that like I, there was a lot of money back in me. <laughs> and then, you know, I dispelled that myth pretty quick with like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I did find that funny. And, you know, I, I also find that people like, you know, I mean, obviously the political spectrum in the United States is trending towards some pretty awful shit, but uh, they were like, genuinely interested and not like not hateful and not like um i guess i'll call it like superstitious in a sense like you know like americans we view you know we live in this like little bubble and like we look at like things like russia or places like russia and uh you know we develop our own kind of notions of what how countries are but beneath every government is just people you know they're just like like you're talking about the conversations that you're having with people from the audience after the shows. Yes. Like you're having a drink, you're breaking it down. Totally. It's just human being to human being. How did they react generally speaking to you as a performer? Because it's one thing if you're in a foreign country and you have your band and your amps, you know, behind you just with all that power. But I've been in that situation where the language barrier, I just, some nights I was able to, to, you know, breach that and get over that hump. And then some nights I feel like I'm just hitting my head against a wall. What was it like for you in, in Russia being an American singing in English? Were they receptive to it on a musical level? In addition to you as you know, obviously the good mm-hmm. person that you are. Oh, well, I appreciate that. They, uh, they, they that's your one they, compliment for the fucking Thank you. Day. I, yeah. I was, I, I, I was wondering if I was going to get one, uh, but, uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, the, uh, they learned the words like they were um, like they found that they they knew that this guy uh, was coming to their town. They looked me up and they learned the words and wow. damned it. Damned if they didn't sing along at like the top of their lungs and like not like not a couple people like and the shows were awesome. Like they were like I mean, they went they ranged from like maybe like 40 or 50 people to like 200 people. Uh, the deeper we got into russia um and the further the further we got towards like um siberia and into siberia uh the more people would show up and i realized that they weren't necessarily showing up for the music they were showing up because they like like i said before they'd never met an american yeah so they were actually like paying a ticket price to like kind of like uh there's like a, a, a zoological uh like they were like they wanted to see an american yeah, were they all coming up to you and, and talking to you afterwards, or was it more they were kind of friendly voyeurs? Uh, well, the, room? Mo- the people that could um, kind of speak English would always come up, and you could tell that there were a ton of other people that really like kind of lingered that wanted to talk, but yeah, we just we just didn't ha- we didn't share the same um, language, so it was like we wouldn't have been able to, and and it it, it became pretty. Uh, oppressive for our tour manager Dima to constantly stand by me while he went through the conversations that were yeah. happening. So I think like like three or four days into tour, I think he was like, I think too many people like to talk to you, so I maybe am not around anymore. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair yeah. Enough. So yeah. How, how many tours did you do in that part of the world? 
between just the two, Russia and I mean, Ukraine? Uh, just two. Okay. And yeah, but the yeah, they were they were uh, big moments for me because I mean, I think one of the tours was we did that was like uh, a part of like doing like I think we did like eighty six shows in like X amount of days within like U.S. Um, Europe, Russia, and I was doing all that solo, and that's like that became like that was that was that was too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I became a I came a, I became like a little detached. I think because at a certain point you like stop becoming social. Uh, you know, you're playing the same songs every night, or like I mean, I I never played the same uh, set at all because like that just fucks me up. Um, <clears throat> too formulaic for me. But uh, it was always nice to like, uh, you know, vary things. But yeah, uh, it got to a point where it was like too much. Um, I guess I I know my line as a as a musician that like uh, I could certainly do a month. I could probably hit two months for sure. But once you're putting those like three months in without a without a break, I think uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm built for it. And I think some people are, and good on them. Yeah, well, I took you as being built for it, and then I tried to model my touring career after what you had done. Mm. I don't know if I ever really told you this, but I, so let's just say, for the purpose of this conversation, we met in 2010. Mm-hmm. I want to say that the first time that we played together on the West Coast was two years later in 2012, when you were touring out there, and I was getting ready to quit my job and start touring full time. And the full, the first tour that I did once I did that was, was two and a half months. Mm-hmm. I, I left on the 12th of August and I came back right before Thanksgiving. That's, that's a long tour. Yeah. And that was us and Europe. Um, and you know, like, and, and England. And whenever I say that, someone's like, well, Europe, England is in Europe. It's like, yeah, no shit Rose. But it's like, you know what it's like? It's like <laughs> yeah. when you book it, it's different. You know, it's not necessarily encompassed. If someone's booking a European tour for you, it usually doesn't include UK dates or whatever. Just like it doesn't necessarily include Russian tour dates or Ukrainian mm-hmm. tour dates as you did. Um, but then I proceeded to continue to do that. So it, it cost me jobs. It cost me my uh, oh, yeah. girlfriend at the time. It cost me an apartment. I didn't strike a good balance mentally with it. I was just kind of uh using you as like a uh, I don't know like a, a patron saint of touring as, as to follow <laughs> and, uh, but now that we're you know all these years removed from it like I can say like I did that too much or I made these mistakes or I I did this to the point of kind of breaking myself did you have moments like that did your wife have moments like that where you thought mm-hmm. We bit off way more than we could chew. We should have stopped three weeks ago. What the fuck are we doing? Yeah, I mean, I sh- definitely um, more so on my end. I think I just uh, I started realizing uh, that I was becoming like pretty detached from everything, and like you know, I make the unfortunate mistake of writing songs about my life. You know, that's what people do sometimes. You know, they don't. Um, sometimes you don't realize how those like become these like wounds that like you're opening on a nightly basis. So at a certain point uh, I was doing that and I was just becoming detached from it. Like I was like singing songs that like were really, really meaningful to me and had like essentially defined my life, uh, who I am. Um, 
and I'd stop thinking about the, the reasons. Um, and I think that's important to remember the reasons when you're doing that, because that's when you're putting the heart into the song. Right. So I started forgetting about the reasons. I also started dreading social interaction uh, with people at shows. And I just like, and that's, I, I think you just call that a burnout. Yeah. Yeah. So I just kind of got like, I got burnt out, but, but it was, it's hard to be burnt out when like, you're like, you're still seeing people come out to your shows. Like, or like, you know, like you're like people made time to be like, you're going to sing your songs and someone took, like they could have done anything. They could be out with their friends. They could be at a movie. They could be practicing some form of self care or some form of self devastation. Uh, and <laughs> you know, they could be doing anything and they chose to, be in front of you while you sang those songs that could be 10 kids two kids 20 kids 50 kids 100 kids yeah that's why right. people have tour managers yeah. is so that the people in your position don't have to bear the brunt of everything yeah you know but i guess but, like if you're not i guess what, what i was trying to say is like if you're not thankful in that moment for anyone that's in front of you while you're singing a song you lost it it, do, it doesn't work anymore or it, does, it wouldn't work for me. Um, and, and I felt that I did feel that like a, yeah. towards the end of like a, a crazy long tour. I was like, I don't know if I'm even here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a wonder. It's my understanding that you kind of always dabbled in making beer, brewing mm -hmm. beer. Oh yeah. Whatever, whatever you do with beer. I know you like to drink beer. We like to drink beer together. I drink, I, I, I like to drink it. Yeah. I would love i I would kill to have a beer with you in person in a COVID free world. We're just like outside oh, raw dogging oxygen, just like <laughs> oh god, yeah, <laughs> just getting crazy with it. We're consuming more oxygen you than just we said, are beer. You just said raw dogging oxygen. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe you just said raw dogging oxygen, but either way. Uh. Yeah, I would also love to have a beer with you in general. I remember when you moved to the Cape, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then, you know, you moved back into civilization and, and you were working in uh, wherever you were, Somerville, all these mm -hmm. last few years. But, you know, did you reach a point of touring where you decided that you didn't want to tour anymore? Or was it you had been touring for so long, but then you got these opportunities to kind of quote unquote settle down and start just kind of living a regular life as a brewmaster or was it a combination of the two? So a part of me is like, I, I, as much as I, so what I just said was like, I got burnt out in touring, but I think like, I also get lost in touring. If that makes sense. Like where it's like, yeah. I'm, I'm good at, I'm not good at many things, but I'm good at that. Like I can settle in, I can do, uh, town to town, city to city for a long time. And even with the burnout, when it settles in, I can like, still do it. But, um, you know, that like phrase, like work smart, not hard. I think that kind of applies when you hit the road, like a lot is yeah. like understanding, like the whim of your, uh, like how you're doing, I guess, like, like, are you in a good spot to be, uh, to play 60 shows? Would it be better for you if you played 14? You know, like, 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 I think that there's a lot that applies to that. Um, 
it's easier to to want to do it than it is to do it. And I think that is probably like pretty common with almost anything. But like if somebody said, I mean, obviously we're in the COVID years, but if somebody said, do you want to go on a 60 day tour? I'd be like, yeah, of course I do. Yeah. Like 20 days in, I'd be like, no, this is a fucking nightmare. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's so weird. I'm not, uh, I'm not a religious person clearly, but I do sometimes think that there are kind of, I don't know, maybe signs from the universe that I'm on the wrong track or, or the right track. The last loop that we did around the States, a few days before we saw you in Boston, actually, mm-hmm. we played somewhere. I think it was like we played Philly and just had like the shittiest show. And I just remember thinking like this used to be my bread and butter. Like my old band ruled Philly. We didn't do well anywhere else, but we did yeah. well in our hometown. And I kind of hoped and was naively thinking that that would, you know, there would be residual people interested in what I was doing with Divided Heaven. And there was for a few years, but for whatever reason, like that last tour, it just like our Philly date was just the worst. It was the drizzling shits. And then the next night in Washington, I'm like having like a breakdown as behind the venue. And I'm just like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to break up this band and I'm going to sell the rest of the records on this, you know, auction site. And I'm going to do this. And my, my friend was like, dude, just, you need to like some perspective. I, I think you just, you did it again. And I was like, what? He's like, you just, you burnt yourself out. You toured yourself into exhaustion. And now you can't, the only uh-huh. way that you can get yourself out of this is by irrationality. And that's not what you should do. And I was like, fuck, I did it again. Like, And then that night we had like arguably the best show of the tour. And I f- was like, oh, I could go for like four more weeks. I'm back in. I'm back, <laughs> baby. Was that something that happened frequently where you kind of wrestled with kind of the worst, you know, angels of your nature and, and the irrational kind of thoughts that, that come into your mind? Because the people that don't tour in the way that you did – will never understand it. And I think a lot of people yeah. romanticize it when they haven't done it. But like you did a good job of kind of learning to eat shit sandwiches for years and, and like, and ask for more and you asked for more. Mm-hmm. Like, did you, did you reach <laughs> a breaking point, you know? And is that kind of why you were like, I got to stop. I did. I, I reached, I reached a few breaking points and they were, they were like few and far between, but uh, you know, it's, t- it's, it's tough. Like, cause like when you think about, you know, almost any situation that you're in that is like not working out for you or it's like, you know, hurting you or whatever. It's like, there's, there's a lot of privilege that gets wrapped up in that. Like, as far as like, you know, for me, it's like, so I'm getting burnt out on tour. Like I'm going from like city to city and sure, like I don't have a day job and like, I, you know, and I'm probably not paying the rent at home that's accumulating or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm still, I still got this like weird, like privilege of like, uh, grabbing a guitar every night, singing songs for people and like, you know, getting my two drink tickets or, or maybe none. And then, you know, or doing whatever. So it, it took, for me, it takes a long time to break because I'm, I'm, I try to be like keenly aware of, and that applies to every aspect of my life, like keenly aware of like, the comforts that I have uh, that I'm afforded. And, uh, but yeah, I definitely had moments like that. I mean, I, I can remember um, playing a show in Cincinnati 
that I was just like, I don't think I ever want to play music again. Um, Cincinnati will do that to you. For sure. Yeah, it was it was rough. <laughs> Cincinnati broke me a little bit. And uh, damn, where else was I? There was a. I mean, I. I, I too know. have. I too have had breakdowns, emotional There's, breakdowns in Ohio. There's something about that. Yeah, Ohio is just a weird place. The. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's almost always somebody though at a show, like if I've played a show where I feel like I'm on the verge of like, just being like, uh, I don't think I can do this for another night, you know, or whatever. And I'm just feeling pissy or whatever, you know, for whatever that's worth, uh, they'll almost always be, uh, and I don't believe in anything. I really don't, but like, um, maybe kindness, uh, but, uh, there'll almost always be somebody that will pop up and be like, isn't that remarkable? That show was amazing. And the fact that you're here and you traveled here is amazing. And then, you know, you get to talk into some um, <clears throat> guy or gal and they're like, I'm going through this, that song helps me and blah, blah. blah. And it's like, well, you just like flip the whole script on my whole uh, <laughs> negativity. And the negativity has gone. And I'm like, damn yeah, it. I'm, I was I'm, planning I'm, on self-loathing all fucking night. Yeah. <laughs> no, my plans. No. You ruined, you screwed my plans up. I was going to, yeah. <laughs> but that's good i don't know I, I, and that just goes to show again like in my opinion that the people that show up to shows are just as important as the people that are playing uh the, the like the, the the meaning like the 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 meaning of of that exchange falls uh in equal measure on both sides and whether the people that are watching know that or not, there is, uh, there's an exchange there that I think is like really important and often overlooked. Sure. Now you've had a rather interesting pivot during this COVID time, but now you've, you're doing hot sauces. I am. <laughs> Where did that come from? I've always been big on like, uh, fermentation. Beer was, has always been a big thing for me. Uh, I've been a brewer by trade for, you know, a long time. I think maybe going on like 12 or 15 years. And uh, notice how I said 12 or 15, which is like, I have no idea how long. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking to myself, like, that's a big fucking gap, man. That, it's a huge gap. In there. I know. Yeah. Well, it's, that's my way of like trying to prevent myself from like actively lying. Because right. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was like, I don't know. It could be like 10 years. Uh, either way. Uh <laughs> The uh, I did. Uh, so You're like the government with the six hundred dollar checks. Like how much I can, can either, rent be for f- for Americans yeah. for for nine months? $600. I can neither confirm that. nor deny the fact that I've been brewing for twelve to fifty years. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, I have a passion for that because um, uh, the science behind that is a big deal for me. Like, it just it's fascinating and. Um, I do like hot sauce. I started digging into hot sauce a while ago and I started making like random bottles of hot sauce, small batches for like friends, just mm-hmm. to, like, just to give the people just, you know, not for um, any type of like monetary gain or anything like that. Just like, Hey, I did this thing and there's too much for my house. You right. should have this. Um, but COVID and then um, the kind of down the, the decline of my, uh, my, my position at the company that I was at, um, winter hill uh kind of made me focus on i had to focus on something um something that was like beyond like my other um you know there's only so much you can read in a day there's only so much you can write in a day there's only so much you can play guitar in a day you know like so it was like i needed to have something else otherwise i I would have felt like i was like maybe 
drowning in like the white noise of my downtime, like mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. And uh, so I started making hot sauce and I kind of unexpectedly found a, another passion while doing it. Uh, it just, I, it kind of clicked with me and I was like, Oh, it's just like making beer. It's like I'm fermenting things, but I'm like putting ingredients together. And like, then I started like posting on my, like I live in, I live in a place called Winter Hill. Winter Hill uh, is in Somerville, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And so we have a community board. So I started posting on that and then saying, hey, I have, uh, I'm making these like hot sauces that are like sriracha. And if you want one, uh, you know, I'll put it in your mailbox for like three bucks, four bucks, five bucks or whatever. And uh, a bu- turns out a bunch of people were interested. And then I started cool. selling out and then I kept on doing it. And then friends from across the country and now I've started mailing out hot sauce to people and yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really unexpected journey to be honest, but it's awesome. And I love it. And it fulfills that, uh, that creative gap that I kind of lost with uh, brewing, which was like, uh, you know, always been like, it feels like more a part of me than, you know, it's like, it feels like losing an appendage when you don't have that. And there is my conversation with my old friend, Jeff Rowe. Thanks to Jeff for coming on the Berman Hour podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to New Wave for being our sponsor. Thanks to everyone who's listened to the new Divided Heaven single, Baby in the Band, which is me. If you haven't yet listened to it, please do so wherever you find your digital music. Also, shout out to Mike Herrera from MXPX and the Mike Herrera podcast, who was nice enough to have me on his podcast. So go listen to it, because we have a great conversation, and we learn a little bit about me and the germ of the idea behind the Berman Hour podcast. And it was just great to... I mean, it's fucking Mike Herrera. So, yeah, go listen, because it's great to talk with someone that I've looked up to for so long. Yeah, the Mike Herrera podcast with yours truly. All right, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Let's get it.